0: 1 Timothy 3 is where we're going to turn in just just a moment. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, speaking about the qualifications of pastors. We have studied the doctrine of the church for some while now, and now uh, focusing more on the qualifications, requirements, characteristics of elders. And we will note several things about them, but... Realizing, well, wait a minute. Who are we talking about again? Who are these people we're we're referring to? We've looked at this. It's been a few weeks ago now. These key terms in the New Testament describing the leaders in a church, in a local church, that is, and that are that is that are those include these three terms or four terms, if you or five terms, I guess, if you really want to go for it. Elder, el- overseer, or bishop, and pastor or shepherd. So those terms are really. Uh, describing the same group of godly men who provide leadership care and direction and teaching for the church in fact we looked at the different if we wanted to summarize the four main categories of what pastors do besides golf every day during the week and just come to work on sunday which no they don't do that but they care for the church they feed the church they protect the church and they lead the church this is what pastors are called to do pastors elders overseers you can use any of those terms interchangeably Here we see the term overseer used in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, giving instruction, of course, to Timothy. Timothy, he says, it's a trustworthy saying. In fact, I have it on the screen here. Um, Let me go this way. There we go. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. It is a trustworthy saying. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife... "...temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil." And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. We see all these different requirements, characteristics, qualifications spoken of with elders, and you think, good grief. Really? All these things true? How are we going to find anybody that meets all these qualifications? Well, thankfully, we realize that God is in the business of changing people's lives, and he is the one who changes us from the inside out. And it might be said this way, that what christians should be in christ which is to say what all christians should be because none of these characteristics we would say oh we we would like a a drunken christian every now and again or we would like somebody who has has a bad reputation with their neighbors in a a bad way but we no, this is a characteristic of all christians what christians should be pastors must be and you think oh good grief how 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 can we even do even as paul says here in verse one if any man aspires to the office of overseer, he's got it coming for him, or we're never going to find anybody. He's not qualified. We better just get a different job because it can't work that way. No, he says it's worth it. It is worth it. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires or pursues or, or longs for a good work. So this verse in verse 1, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, helps us realize, let's encourage Men who have a desire a, a burning desire, even not just something that is a, a faddish kind of a thing, a transitory yeah i 'd like to be an astronaut, you know, kind of like the early aspirations of of a youth you know fireman astronaut lawyer, um, business analyst, all the different aspirations that young kids have of of I'm not I'm just, don't get okay it's it's okay different people have different uh, skill sets and different desires but here a desire is to be a shepherd to be a pastor to be one who is providing this feeding and leading and caring and protecting for on behalf of the local church so he desires a good work it is not something that is a capricious you know carefree decision it's something he's devoted himself to it is something he uses two different words here, aspire and desire. Aspire has the idea of striving forward, straining toward something. It's it's to such a degree that, hey, this person is willing to receive instruction, receive uh, some discipleship through the process, willing to go and, and get some advanced degrees perhaps uh, for, for uh, not because they're required, but because they're helpful because of, of two skills well one skill really the being apt to teach or able to teach which we'll see in Titus 1 if we have time today uh, what that looks like but these elders pastors overseers have a responsibility primarily to minister the word of God now we all do right we've said that we all have this ministry of the word through authentic relationships but again what Christians should be elders pastors overseers must be. These men do this not out of ambition, not a desire for power, realizing, hey, if I want to really control the world, I'll be a pastor. No, although so much change, really the only hope for change in this world is through the power of the gospel, I mean, bar none, not in, in political parties, not in military power, not in uh, money, 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 not, no, that's not how change, not, that's not how real, lasting change uh, uh, livelihood and and uh, power comes it comes from the gospel it comes from knowing god knowing his word and that brings real hope for a lasting change inner change that comes uh or, or percolates out of being born again born of the spirit so being a pastor is not a, a desire for power prestige honor money although some have found that and and the uh, and for a variety of reasons, have enjoyed that notoriety, fame, and money, and so forth. But that's, that's not, if you look at the, the bulk of pastors around the world, obscure, poor, unknown, faithful to their local congregation is what, what we want to see. Also, it says this man aspires to the office of overseer. It's not something forced upon him. Remember, we looked at 1 Peter 5. Don't serve under compulsion like you're forced to it. You know, like it's, as you're standing on a line with everybody and they say, okay, first one to step forward will be whatever, a pastor. And everybody steps back except the one you forgot to step back with all the rest of them. And here you are, and now you're forced to, to be the pastor. No, that's not how it is. If any man aspires, desires, you know, orients his life toward that work, he desires a good work. The second word, desire, is the word we would normally see. In fact, it's used twice in the, new, in the uh, Ten Commandments. You shall not... Covet, you shall not desire. Now, in that context, obviously, he's not talking about pastors, overseers, elders. He's talking about those who have a, an ordinate desire for more, and especially what belongs to somebody else. Because he says, "You shall not covet, covet your neighbor's wife, slave, donkey, all those things over here." Not that they're um, equivalent. No, but the coveting is is a negative sense. But in in uh, another place, he talks about desiring. In a a good sense, Deuteronomy 14 and verse 26, talking about the use of tithe money and so forth. You may spend the tithe money for whatever your heart desires, whatever you want. And you think, whoa, whatever I want. Well, he gives some suggestions, right? Kind of like a a suggested donation or something or suggested uh, purchase price for oxen, for sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat it in the presence of Yahweh your God and be glad you and your household. So he says, whatever you want, whatever you desire to do, you can participate in. Here, he says, if any man aspires, strives for, and desires, which is to say, I, I want that, I, I want to serve the church in this way, I want to serve the Lord in this way, then, hey, it's a good work. It's not something that we ought to poo-poo or, or say, hey, sit down, you know, you don't know anything, or, or um, do you know what you're getting into? We want to encourage men in this way toward the pastoral office, We want to encourage men to take the leadership, even as we read in verse four, in their homes, four and five, that we see them active in in shepherding their wives and their children as God provides and to be practicing those skills that are necessary in practicing in their home, the skills that are necessary to practice also in the church. So he lists, though, what is amazing about this list in 1 Timothy 3, also in Titus 1, also in 1 Peter 5. We talk about the qualifications of pastors. Those are the three primary uh, passages that we'll, we would look at. We looked at 1 Peter 5 last week. Today, we'll look at 1 Timothy, maybe into Titus 1. A lot of those the terms that we see in Titus 1 are also mentioned here. So we'll have a little bit of overlap going forward. But he says, an overseer then. He's talking about those who hold the office of overseer, pastor, elder, He says each one, each one of these guys, and he uses it in a kind of a generic singular, you know, a president or a a senator ought to be this way. It's not just a senator, this one over here, but all the senators collectively or all the presidents or all the pastors here. This first categorical kind of umbrella term is that they must be above reproach. This is maybe a summary term. It's mentioned also in, in Titus 1. And verse 6, a little different term there, but same idea. That is to say, someone who is blameless, somebody who you can't accuse uh, genuinely, or if there is any accusation, it, it, it is addressed, it, it cannot be sustained. It is describing a overall an overall pattern of life that is beyond scrutiny. It's not to say that pastors aren't scrutinized, they are very carefully. And yet, realizing, hey... They're walking faithfully before God. And they're not perfect. We're not talking perfection. We're talking direction of life. We're talking how are these men ordering their lives? How are they conducting their lives? We want this first overarching characteristic to be seen in each one of these these men's life. They must be above reproach. This word here has the idea of uh, not able to be seized, arrested, or um, charged with anything. Not able to be held is really the, the, the root idea of it. It is used to describe, of course, these pastors, elders, overseers. In this verse, it is used in relation to, well, in another sense, for all Christians that we ought to be above reproach, that we ought to be uh, above criticism. We ought to be men and women of integrity so that our outer actions, the the, the lives that we live on the, on the outside, match what is real about our insides, uh, we, our internal life in Christ. If we were to say... Uh, Ephesians 4 and verse 1 that we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called that we would let I like to paraphrase it this way that our daily practice balance or match with our eternal position in Christ if we are in Christ and how we live our lives how are we to conduct our lives well if we are in Christ, and we should live before God. We should live with an orientation, a consciousness of God. If we're born of God, we should pay attention to his word. If we are born of God, we should love his people. All these kinds of things that we would expect to see in the lives of pastors, elders, overseers. To be above reproach is, again, a key idea, and we'll see some very practical implications of it as we go through these qualifications. The second characteristic here is the husband of one wife. Or maybe you've heard it said very literally, a one woman man. Uh, we would want to emphasize first that it says a one woman man, not a one man woman or a man or a woman. Or what he's saying, we're, we're talking about men. These are the men who provide leadership in the church. These are the ones, just as we see throughout the, the Bible, where, again, if you don't mind, this is, this is controversial in this day and age, where leadership is male. It's not to say women can't lead, but as a primary duty, occupation, necessity uh, before God is that the men take the lead and they are the ones providing the service. Here he says it's a special kind of man in relation to his marital status or not just marital status, but his sexual identity, his sexual practice. How does he conduct himself as a man made in God's image in relation, especially to women? Here he says the man must be a husband of one wife, or a one-woman man. This is speaking, again, it could be, a lot could be said about this one little phrase, but let me just summarize it by saying that we what it could mean is that this person has to be married. You think, oh, so we, we can't have any single, unmarried, uh, divorced, widower, whatever, a man serving. I don't think that's what he's getting. I don't think he's, he's saying that that is the case, that they need to be married. I think it's prudent for... Uh, pastors to be married, but it's much beyond that. It's much more, much more, much beyond just a is he married, not married, whatever the marital situation is, because it, it, that is an external thing. That's a, a, a reality that can change and different things, but there's something more more deep that he is referring to. It can say a husband of one wife as opposed to a husband of two or three or ten wives, the polygamy aspect uh, that could be that he's saying about that as well although polygamy was not so much practiced in the first century. uh, In fact, in the Greek and Roman world, not much at all. They they had one legitimate wife, but then they had typically, if if they, uh, especially in the leadership, the Roman uh, leadership, they had all kind of other uh, uh, relationships outside of wife. In fact, one guy, Demosthenes, said, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives... To bear us legitimate children, Demosthenes said. So marriage is only one, even in the Roman context. So it's not polygamy. What about married to a woman? You think, really? You have to to say that? Yes, because no, this is one man, one woman. Going back to Genesis 1 and 2, especially 2.24, where he says, Uh, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two should become one flesh the man shall leave his father cleave to his wife a woman one man one woman a covenant relationship of marriage and even we had to go so far in our bylaws to say a and marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman as sex determined at birth I mean, you have to go that far to, I mean, to say what's common sense obvious. This is what we are. So is he saying that? You have to be a husband of one wife, a husband of one woman. It mean, goes without saying perhaps that, but we have to, have to say that in these days. What about married only one time, uh, whether the wife is living or not? There, so in other words, no remarriage. There is some measure of that that could be in relation to here spoken of here because in, there is a, a reverse term a one-man woman. We see it in First Timothy 5, speaking of widows, widows who are uh, faithful. Uh, in fact, there we have that word, inserted: faithful, uh, wives of one man. So there was some virtue attached to women who had only been married once. I don't think that, is neat. that was in the Roman first, first century kind of uh, time frame. I don't think that is uh, biblical necessarily. I don't think we need to uphold that. In other words, you can't mar- be married more than once. Uh, you I think he 's getting at here that this marriage is not just a man, man and one woman, um, a man with married only once. I think it gets more more deep to the heart. What kind of a man is this? What kind of attitude, what kind of uh, fidelity does this man have to his wife that he has now? It is the faithfulness to a marriage vow, which is to say when Jesus says in matthew nineteen what God has joined together, let no man separate or tear apart or, or tear asunder. It's God joining this. And you think, oh, that's kind of weird. God joining together marriages. Is that just Christian people or is that all, all people, You know, non-Christians as well? Does God join together the marriages of other people? Yes. Because in that context, verse 4, especially in Matthew 19, verse 4, speaks about God. He says, have you not read... That God made them male and female, and he said for this reason, Deuteronomy 2.24. Uh, in other words, I'm getting way deep here, I'm sorry. In other words, God has joined together in two ways. First, by his design, he made them male and female, and by his decree, he said. When that word's uh, it's not Deuteronomy 2.24, it's Genesis 2.24. When it is said, for this reason, a man, that's God speaking, it's not Adam, He's the one who gave that first poem, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That was Adam speaking. But now, for this reason, that's God speaking. And so we see two different ways that God joins together, husband and wife, Christian, non-Christian, whatever. It's because he made them male and female and because he said, this is what marriage is like. God defined marriage. Not we don't. It's not a, a cultural phenomenon. It's not something that we came up with. It's God's design from the beginning in the garden, right? It's before the fall. It is good. It's God's blessing. And yet we have turned aside to so many different ways to controvert God's uh, provision for us. And we realize faithfulness to a marriage vow, God's uh, bringing these together, but not just to the vow, to the person you married, that woman that that God has given to us. Even And we'll get into Job here sometime this fall, definitely. But remember when Job's wife gave him some rotten counsel just not good at all she said you know all this stuff has bad happened to you and to me by extension why don't you just curse god and die because that's obviously what you ought to do and job could have said away with you woman, you speak as a no he said you are speaking as a person perverse woman or foolish woman does shall we not accept the the adversity from god as well as the blessings and he says it perverse of course he's he doesn't call her a fer- foolish perverse woman he says you are speaking as one who is foolish so even in that he was being kind and gentle to rather negative nasty counsel that he got from his wife be careful with that he job was faithful not just to his vows as a husband but to his wife to hit that woman don't know her name mrs job whatever one I think helpful a reference that underscores this idea of covenant faithfulness in marriage beyond just marital status, whether he's married or not, and all those other things I mentioned, is 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Second Corinthians eleven two really, in my mind, helps us understand what is Paul writing? Because this is a difficult phrase, one woman, man. It's only here. It's in, well, it's in uh, 1 Timothy uh, 3. Uh, 2 in relation to overseers. It's also in First Timothy three twelve in relation to deacons. But it's also used in Titus 1 and verse 6, a one woman man or a husband of one wife. But this 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 helps us realize there's something deeper going on here. And that is what uh, Paul references here In verse 2, I am jealous for you. This is the church in Corinth, the local church. I am jealous for you, not in a negative way. I wish I had what you had. No, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You see that the emphasis he has is to one husband. You have an orientation to one person. Of course, this is from the, the woman's perspective, the bride of Christ's perspective. I betrothed you to one husband so that I may present you as a pure virgin. In the context he's talking about, don't be distracted by false doctrines. Don't be distracted by you know the the shiny new things that other people are saying. You be devoted, be faithful to your husband. You commit yourself to him. You do what is pleasing to him. The contrasting or con, converse idea from the husband's perspective is you do what is pleasing to your wife. You do what is, is honoring to her. You be faithful to her. And so it's not just the status of marriage, it's what's the state of the man's heart in relation to his wife. You can consider any number of, especially in the political realm, any number of political leaders who have been married only once. They've never been divorced. They've never been widowed. Their, their wives are, uh, you know, they're still intact. But their heart is not faithful to their wife. They are, no. And so, well, well, if, if it's marital status that he's talking about here, then they would qualify to be an elder. No, these are minimum qualifications I I should have mentioned earlier. These are the, the again, what Christians should be, elders, pastors, overseers, must be. This is beyond just a marital status. This is speaking about the heart of the man and how he is totally devoted to his wife, totally uh, committed to uh, fulfilling his duties as a husband in that regard. Again, much more could be said about it. I have other notes I could share if you wanted to talk about this further. But moving on in verse 2, Above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate. This person must be temperate. This is the idea in relation to uh, substances, but just not even illicit substances. Just stuff, or or modes, or manners of life, or just what you could do with your time. Uh, a temperate man is one who is not given to excess or extremes. Not one who is. Uh, well, you, you, you kind of have to observe the person first to see what kind of mood he's in because it might be you know one of these high things or it might be somebody's, somebody who's balanced, somebody who's moderate, somebody who is uh, pays attention to his words or his uh, the way that he's, uh, again, spending his time, money, resources, somebody who is disciplined, who is not self-indulgent. It's all about me. It's all about you may kiss the ring. Uh, it's not about, um, it even has to do with with uh, clear-headedness in in thinking or decision-making so that this person is is temperate, not given to this whim or that thing or this fad over here. And level-headed, I guess, if you were to summarize this. This is used to describe overseers. It's used to describe women in verse 11, which could be women deacons or women... Uh, wives of, of vegans, we'll look at that another time. Verse 11, is also speaking of older men. So again, these, these qualifications are not just for elders, like they're these super spiritual, uh, amazing, saint-like creatures. Somehow not, we're not worthy of them. No, they're just, they're standing out front. They're leading their congregation. They're caring, uh, providing for the congregation, what God has provided to them. But they're just like every other Christian ought to be. And, and so we, we expect and we must see this in relation to them to these men. Husband of one wife, temperate, sensible is the next word here. This again has to do with decision making. Uh, the, the, the decisions are well uh, thought out, that they are considered not off the cuff uh, decisions. The, the man controls his speech, controls the opinions he's, he offers to people. Everybody has an opinion, but these elders, pastors overseas are careful regarding their um, their thoughts, their attitudes, and how they communicate that with other people. They're not superficial in that, you know, they're, they're talking about the latest, you know, sneaker, or uh, do people wear sneakers anymore? I don't know what the fad is anymore. I'm uh, i am I'm not aware of that. Anyway, uh, orderly, balanced, reasonable, uh, that they are self-controlled again. They are, they're very careful about how they conduct them, their lives. They have, one person said, they have, he has his wits about him. I uh, just, you know, making wise choices, making wise decisions. Next word has to do with respectableness. Uh, that is the word from which we get um, cosmetics or cosmetology, all those kind of things. It uh, has to do with an an appearance of orderliness, but this is a real orderliness. This is something that everything is in place. Uh, again, going back to that um, word temperate has to do with uh, sensible or not given to extremes, an orderly or respectable person who has is one who has his life in order. That is worthy of respect. That is worthy of being followed. That the, the pattern or the example he provides is something that that garners or generates the respect which we studied earlier. First Thessalonians five twelve says that you see to it to think highly of those who labor in that regard. or First Timothy five seventeen. Uh, the elders who rule well are considered worthy of double honor, to, to give that honor, not just respect and esteem, but also some financial remuneration for their labor. But these are men who are, they're not sloppy in their words, their appearance, their, their uh, sermon preparation, delivery, and so forth. And they do have and garner that respect uh, from, from people in the church. And we saw in verse 7, even outside, having a good reputation with those outside the church he says here, second to last characteristic in this verse is hospitable. This literally means lovers of strangers, lover of the, uh, lovers of people, but especially those that are not familiar friends or family to them. In other words, they have an open heart. Again, it, this isn't so much as, okay, how many how many guests has he had in his home this, this week or this year, and how many of them were first-time people that he just happened to meet? Well, we don't want to get to that uh, pedantic or, or uh, qualitative, but Again, going to the heart, what kind of a person is this guy? What kind of attitude does he have toward other people? Is he open-hearted toward other people? Is he concerned about them? Is he try to find—it's not, not hard to find. Does he does he acknowledge, recognize needs of other people and see what, what can I do to help meet that need or maybe connect, uh, network different people? You know, this person has this need. That person has the supply to that need and, and trying to arrange people in that regard. It's not simply somebody who likes to have people in his home uh, that can just be a party house, right? But somebody who is has an open hand, open home, open heart to bless and help people. It is the opposite of something we could consider to be self-focused, selfish, self-centered that is also, unfortunately, a characteristic of many people that we live for ourselves and and uh, that that's not to be so of elders, pastors, overseers. We can see this in relation to Job. He was a host to travelers and he was very careful to see what What ways he could provide for the needs of others, Abraham, of course, in that time of the patriarchs, very careful to generate and and it almost is embarrassing how much they would go out of their way to bless with food and bread and and shelter and and wow, even to the detriment of their own household, they would be hospitable to those outside the outside the family. this word at the end of verse two. Actually, it's just one word in, in the Greek, but here it said apt or able to teach. It is used only in relation to um, uh, elders here in verse 2, also in Second Timothy 2 and verse 24, that the Lord's slave or bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. So, this again is speaking of, of elders who have that responsibility of teaching, feeding the congregation. And yet you think, wait a minute. If if these qualifications are something that should be expected or seen in all Christians, but absolutely must be seen in elders, then do all Christians have a, a responsibility to teach? And we say, yes, definitely. Every Christian has a responsibility to teach. Do you remember in Hebrews 5 and verse 12, uh, the writer says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. you would think, Wait a minute. You ought to be teachers? Teaching what? Well, God's word, sharing God's word. And well, I'm not a teacher. I don't have the skill. But you speak, don't you? And don't you teach, don't you teach, you ought to follow this team over here, you ought to invest in this thing over here, or you ought to eat this, you ought to go to this restaurant. You teach, you encourage, you, you, hold a, a, um, uh, an in, you hold an influence over other people. So use that to direct people toward the Lord, to his word. We are given, committed to the ministry of the word of God. We teach, we admonish, we rebuke, all these things. So what should be true of all Christians must be true of, of elders. This time you ought to be teachers, but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food, Hebrews 5 and verse 12. This means several things. We'll see it also in Titus 1 and verse 9, but it means somewhat, again, if this man desires, he strives for this office of overseership, he's going to do something to prepare. He's going to have some measure of study, personal study of God's word. He is doing the the uh, the hard work in the in the in the desk at the office uh, to to understand a passage to be able to present it in a cogent clear way to the congregation to their benefit they are so familiar with scripture that they're able to identify hey what that person said that's not true that's false doctrine and then able also to rebuke those who Contradict First, uh, Titus one nine says rebuking false teachers from outside rebu- rebuking savage wolves from inside the congregation, being careful to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. There is some measure of fruit to the to the man's teaching that there is some measure of effectiveness or a good receptivity again, uh, one guy said a good bible a good Bible church, a biblical church is one where the church where excuse me where the Bible is taught. Faithfully, but also obeyed and listened to. It's one thing, you know, from this perspective to, to teach and to expound and all this, but what about seeing the, the scriptures alive in the congregation? A Bible church is one in which the word is spoken and uh, received. And, and even Isaiah 66, verse 2 says, uh, trembling at his word, reeling, like, whoa, this is what God said. Amen. I wish I could see that more in my life. What can I do to make that more a reality in my life? So seeing that, seeing have some, having some fruit from the teaching of the word, having convictions. I remember years ago saying, boy, I wish I had some convictions regarding Scripture. Well, I have some now. And now it's holding biblical convictions. I mean, everybody has opinions, right? But the conviction is something that's a more settled, uh, defined uh, resol- resolution or, or, you know, this is what God says and this is how I understand it and this is how I am practicing it. And I want to see other people as well. It is teaching and defending the historic Orthodox faith uh, handed down from the apostles and so forth. It doesn't mean you're gifted in teaching. There's a different gift. First uh, Corinthians 12 uh, speaks about that. Romans 12:7 also speaks about that. We saw in First Timothy 5:17 that some elders labor in the word and doctrine. All men are supposed to be apt to teach, but some men give special attention to it, and that is that's fine. But we need to affirm the reality. Each pastor, elder, overseer has the responsibility to be able to teach, have the desire to teach, have the skill to teach. Not you know, not a ten-part series on whatever, but but being able to speak God's word with some benefit to the to the hear. He goes on here in verse three: not addicted to wine, not addicted to wine, not one who is constantly beside wine. You see him always has a glass in his hand. You know what is, what's in your glass? Oh, it's nothing. It's fine. One who is just lingering over these things. One who is given to the excesses of alcohol. One who is, um, here, not given to the excesses, excuse me. One who is free from the incapacitating effects of drink. Not a drunkard. Not one who is, uh, needs the wine kind of thing. Uh, There was a sermon given, I think it was last month, it was September, uh, John MacArthur presented on a, in commentary about Ephesians 5.18, which says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he, I think it was even a two-part sermon. This was a summary sermon on alcohol. And he asked a series of eight questions about alcohol in this modern age. Let me just give you these these uh, questions. You can go back and listen to his sermons on Grace to You's website from a few weeks ago on Ephesians 5.18. You can find it that way. But he says, Is modern alcohol the same as First century alcohol, no, it is much more refined, much more powerful, much more potent. Second, is it necessary to drink alcohol in this modern age? In the first age, yes, it was how they had uh, clean or, or purified or not infected, not not uh, i can't think of the word. It's, it's safe to drink it after drink, safe to drink water after you refine it with some alcohol. We don't need to do it now in this modern age. You don't need to drink alcohol. Is number three is alcohol the best thing to drink? No, there's so many different options. I mean, even Gatorade or whatever. I mean, I don't, I'm, not a sponsor, I'm not sponsored by Gatorade. but if you, any, anything you can drink, you, you're not. You don't have to drink alcohol. Number four is drinking alcohol habit forming. Potentially, yes, very much so. Number five is drinking alcohol potentially destructive. Yes, to your own life, to other people's lives. Number six is drinking alcohol potentially offensive to other Christians. Yes. Now you think, oh, but they're the weaker Christians. I'm the stronger. Look, if it offends your brother. Should you do it? No, no. Number seven, might drinking alcohol alcohol harm your Christian testimony? Yes, it might very much. And number eight, might drinking alcohol wound your conscience? Yes, It, it certainly could. So all those different questions you want to consider. This person is not addicted to wine, not one who lingers over the drink, not one who is given to those excesses. Again, he's temperate, right? Moderate and those kinds of things. He says not addicted to wine or pugnacious so not pugnacious not one who is a a brawler this one with the word right below it here on the screen pugnacious versus peaceableness this pugnacious has to do more they're very similar words but this one has to do more with uh coming to blows against people you know vi- physical violence one who is a striker you know striking people one who is uh, wrathful all these different words that come from the good Latin term uh, "bellum," uh, uh, warfare or, or uh, fighting with each other, belligerent, bellicose, uh, wonderful things. This this uh, wonderful bad things, I should say. Uh, this word pugnacious it really comes from the Latin word uh, "fist." You know somebody who solves problems with his fist. Somebody who's so eager to, um, or just naturally resorts to physical violence. Somebody who's quick-tempered, a hot-tempered. Somebody who who is is again not temperate, not even-keeled. Those kinds of things. Pugnacious wants to solve problems with his fist. Uh, let me just jump over, consider it for a moment, but going to peaceable. Peaceable has more the idea of. Instead of using your fist or, or actions to, to beat on people, you use your words. And you are contentious. You are argumentative. You constantly bicker about these things. You are in a debate, in a conversation. You are generating more heat than light. You, things are getting hot and bothered. over the, but, but where are we getting ahead on this conversation? Uh, this man is given to outbursts of anger, or should not be. I, you, can, you can understand. Uh, contentious, I, I mentioned, one who is a peacemaker, one who says, okay, we got an issue over here. We got somebody holding this side of the issue, somebody over here. How can we bring these people together? How can we bring you know, a diplomatic solution to this issue? I mean, it's easy enough. Seems like. Let's just fight it out and let the best man win. Uh, oh, if, if, you know, that doesn't work, ultimately. And it's very expensive, damaging, and 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 not good. What about a peaceable person, one who is able to uh, bring together opposing uh, sides of an issue? And not one who is, you know, it's my way, the highway kind of thing. I'm, I'm the boss, I'm in charge, I'm the leader, I'm the whatever. No, being being, being uh, gentle in these ways. In fact, that's what he says, but considerate. One who is uh, gives leeway for the sensitivities of other people, one who is gentle, Uh, maybe your translation says, one who is courteous toward other people, uh, patient with other people. Everybody's not in the same, we're on the same path as Christians, right? But some are farther along than others. Some are still dealing with this issue back here, right? Hebrews 5.12. You have need of the elementary teaching. We want to progress further into this way. We want you to be uh, uh, further along in this way. But a pastor here is considerate, able to help those. Not a heavy-handed, harsh, or severe person. Somebody who shows mercy, uh, who has, uh, one person said it, a sweet reasonableness about him helping other people. This being considerate is not a weak, a position of weakness. It's not a position of, oh, you, you just can't handle the hard stuff. No, if you don't mind, pastors are those who are able to handle the hard stuff, but also able to gently lead other people forward in grace. Consider it showing compassion and kindness to other people. He says here, he is um, free from the love of money. This is one term. Isn't that amazing how Greek can be expanded into into a whole phrase? This word is also the name of our truck, our Yukon, which is free from the love of silver. It's one, aphalogros is the word. And because our truck is silver, it used to be a really nice truck. Now it's kind of old and has a lot of rust. But uh, it was a really nice truck back in the day. And we said, we don't want to be in love with this truck. It's a useful tool, but we don't want to uh, boast in it or all these things. We wanted to be free from the love of silver. We wanted to be not greedy, desirous, we, but also pastors, not one who is has an unsatiable, unquenchable desire for more. Now, we should we should desire more. Ephesians 4, 28, I think it is. It says, let him who stole steal no longer. So don't steal anymore, but rather work, labor, working with his this is good, so they'll be able to give or meet the needs of other people. In other words, you work not just for meeting your own needs, but also to have open hands to share with other people. Um, and so that is, is spoken of there. First Timothy 5 also speaking of uh, the need for household members to provide for the, the needs in their own household. So it is a desire for increase. it is a desire for, for more, but not to spend on your own desires, not to spend on my own self. You know, I'm saving up all this money for me, for myself. No, you, you have money so you can give to other people and, and meet other needs. And so not motivated, not mandated or, or um, given to more and more stuff for myself. And that's a big deal. Again, you think, how can it be a big deal with pastors? Well, part of it is because uh, there, there's not a lot of honor. Now, I, you go along with this a little bit. There's, there's not a lot of honor for those nameless, unknown, obscure, faithful pastors that they are often paying for their own expenses out of their own pocket. Maybe as Paul did, the Apostle Paul, who was not a pastor, but an apostle, he says, I worked very hard to provide for my own needs and for everybody who traveled with me and other people that, that came to me. I worked on their behalf or for their behalf. I, it wasn't all about me. I'm giving other people. It's so much the opposite of wanting more for myself. So he says, free from the love of money. Verse 4 and 5 are really combine this idea, and Titus has some other words on this topic as well. But he says, Leading his own household well. This word leading is the same word we've encountered before. One who stands before, one who leads, guards, protects, is on the alert for these people. One who is governing or managing the, the, uh, the people allotted to him here in the context of the household. Not just the house, like the, the structure. Uh, you could live in a tent. You could live in an RV, whatever. But it's, not, it's not that physical structure. It's the people. Leading, caring for the members of his household well, in a good fashion. It says that th- this this man's really, and he says it in verse five, very explicitly, whatever you see in the man's family, you're going to see in the church. If he's in leadership in the church, we're going to see the same kind of characteristics, both in leadership style, uh, manner of, of doing in the home, you're going to see it in the church. Now, I know that we can put on our churchy faces and get all dressed up and everything on a Sunday morning and then, and then uh, you know, almost, God forbid, live like the devil the rest of the week. We don't want that. What we see in the home, we're going to see in the church. It may take some time, right? 1 Timothy 5 says, don't lay hands on anyone hastily. Some people's good deeds are obvious. Some, think, it's going to follow after and vice versa. Bad deeds, you may not discern at the right time, but you can't hide these things. In other words, give enough time, what is really going on in the man's heart is going to prove itself in any kind of leadership. We're going to see it in the home first. He says, having children, having his children, not just all children, but his own children in submission with all dignity. Now, this again comes to the, comes to the question, does he have to have children? What about pastors who either A, aren't married or B, don't have any kids? Does that mean they're disqualified? I don't think so. I, I think generally speaking, the, the normal pattern of life, God willing and God providing is People get married and have children. That's God's command, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and so forth. And so you would, in a general uh, sense, you would expect men to follow the the pattern of of this world, and that is to marry and and bear children. And if the man has children, then they are in subjection, subjection or submission with all dignity. The people, the children that he has. Now, what about children who wander away from the faith after they leave the home or, or maybe not wander from the faith but just aren't living for Christ? This, this idea is really emphasizing, I think, the children that he has with him under his day-to-day tutelage and care and concern. And, of course, it's not to, to separate the two ideas that the people, you know, children outside the home are, do not reflect on the, the man's leadership but I think it's primarily speaking about those kids who are at home, children living under the father's authority. And it says here that they should be in submission or in subjection. This is somebody who submits to, listens to the directors of, directives of the father. They are obeying the 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 father, the parent, and so forth. We studied in Colossians 3 that uh, fathers should not exasperate their children or provoke them to anger. So there's that idea that this idea is, is you know, my children will never disobey or never do this, and, and you know, they'll have uh, serious repercussions. Uh, that, uh, how does the saying go? They, the board of education applied to the seed of knowledge, You know that whole thing, kind of euphemistically speaking, uh, uh, spanking them, ouch, on their seed of knowledge, ouch. Uh, and so maybe there's that. But this is not talking about a harsh, cruel tyranny. This is not somebody who is overbearing. No, this is somebody who is, how did that verse earlier say? Considerate helping, gentle, kind, helping children move along. And it says here with all dignity, with all uh, respectfulness or reverence or or uh, uh, holiness even in their lives, that we ought to see some measure. Because again, we'll just move to verse five. If a man does not know how to t- lead, same word, lead his own household, how will he, this is a different term, how will he take care? How will he nurture? How will he show concern for the church of God? What we see in the man's home, we're going to see by extension in the church at large. This word uh, take care of is something we also see. It's only used here in the New Testament and twice when Jesus speaks about the work of the Samaritan toward the man who was maligned, broken, robbed, left for dead back in Luke 10. The Samaritan came and cared for. He nurtured the man. And then, of course, the innkeeper, the Samaritan, said, hey, care for this guy. And any needs, any money you spend, I'll, I'll pay you back. So there, by extension, of course, the Samaritan is caring for that that man, that man who's left for dead there. Just quickly here in verses 6 and 7, we'll have to look at Titus 1 next week. This man cannot be a new convert, not one who is newly planted, the word literally says, not a new or a recent person that come to faith in Christ. This one has uh, some proven experience, some maturity, not just in age. This person doesn't have to be gray-haired or, or thing, but needs to be needs to have some years following Christ under his belt, if you don't mind. There needs to be some time given to the working out of salvation. Philippians 2, uh, 12 and 13 speak about. We need to be careful that these men are have grown in Christ, that they are... Uh, growing and having grown in Christ because the danger when you appoint somebody too early, they can't, they can't bear it. You, you think of a of a seedling, I mean, literally of a, of a plant, and if it's, if it's nurtured in a, in a greenhouse environment where there's no wind, there's no elements, natural elements coming against them, and you immediately take that out in, and it's a hurricane force winds, it's going to die. It's going to be a problem. Or the thing is going to say, oh, I'm finally free and going to grow inordinately high and then but it doesn't have stability, it doesn't have strength in its in its uh, root in its root or in its its stalk and it's gonna fall over. Same idea here he's speaking of. He will not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and say, Well look at me, I'm something after all. No. Conceit, pride, arrogance is a very real danger because Again, you, you think, well, these are these are the leaders of the congregation. They're the ones that uh, have the responsibility, the leadership, uh, authority, and so forth. And it can be leading to pride and arrogance. He says, don't, just don't appoint newly planted Christians. It's, it's not going to go well. Let them mature. Let Give them some time. Maybe give them some smaller responsibilities in the church, you know, Take out the trash or wash the windows or would you would you call this person over? Just check on them, see what their status, because they had this issue going, just check on them. Just see how they can do with those smaller responsibilities and then to grow into these. Because the danger is these men can become conceited, that is to be puffed up, but um, it's puffed up to such a degree, and we see this in movies all the time or in, in literature where it talks about these guys who are full of power and authority, and that leads to their downfall. It makes them crazy. this lust for power, lust for authority. Uh, they become practically demented. I mean, just out of their minds, you have lost it. There's no connection between you and reality at any point. You have become so extremely proud, so intensely arrogant. There's no, there's no remedy for that. So he says, it's better to have no men, if you don't mind, than to have the wrong men, and especially newly planted Christians. Be very careful. Verse seven, he says, he must have a good conscience or a good, excuse me, a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. I forgot to mention. Then in verse six, it says, fall into the condemnation of the devil. That's not the de- thats not the condemnation that the devil provides, like the devil is going to condemn. What? The devil is the proudest arrogant most arrogant creature in this world he's the one who said i will be like the most high i will establish my throne in the heavens no the condemnation of the devil is the condemnation the devil has received he's been cast out of heaven there is a whole world created for the devil and his angels and false you know unbelievers will be cast into that because of his pride because of his arrogance this fall is in being subject to that same condemnation that the devil will receive. But here, it's a little bit different. He must have a good reputation, a good witness, a good uh, uh, character reference in relation to other people outside the church. And you think, why is it so much outside the church? Because the consistency is what we're looking for. Between the church and the home, yes. Between the church and the community. Business dealings, uh, neighbor neighbor uh, issues, um Co workers, all these different things, these relationships, that the man has a good reputation. So he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This is something now, it's not something that happens to the devil. This is something the devil wants to take leaders down. He wants to ruin their reputation, wants to bring shame and reproach upon not just them, upon the church, upon the scriptures, upon Jesus, God in general, God the Father. Satan wants to destroy these people. The snare, it's a, a, you know, snare is something that's hidden. It's not something you say, oh, there's a snare over there, and you walk right into it and say, oh, I didn't know. No, this is something that's hidden. It, It looks so innocent, it looks so unassuming, but it is something that brings destruction and despair upon these people. The devil wants to destroy not just individual men, but the whole system of God's redemption and righteousness in Christ. And so we need to be careful that these men have a good reputation with those outside the church, for the sake of the integrity of the gospel and the power of God's word to change lives. Well, again, these are qualifications that are so amazing. They're so profound. But it's not just the super Christians are the ones who have this. Everybody needs to be evidencing these requirements, these qualifications, showing God's wonderful, life-changing power in our individual lives and certainly must see these things in the leaders that God has provided for the congregation. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you are the one who's changing lives. So many of these things are just beyond us. We're just amazed that, that these are requirements that could be considered. And yet we know that you are a God who changes lives. You're the one who gives grace to the humble. You're those who, the one who gives wisdom to those who need wisdom. You are the one who gives fruit to all kind of situations that are, are so difficult. You are the, the faithful one, and we want to be faithful to you. We pray that you would provide godly men to provide the shepherding leadership, the care of pastors, elders, overseers, and that you'd be honored in this church and other churches. Please establish the uh, godly leadership that so many churches need, the adherence to your word and the testimony of their lives in the, in the community and in the, in the home especially. We thank you for each one who's here. Again, we pray you to save and sanctify for your honor and glory. Please help us to minister the word as we have opportunity now, sharing your goodness, sharing love and attention, affection, even solutions as we see needs as we talk with one another. Please help us to be very active in serving one another in love. We thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.